Dan Coats says no to President Trump. A new score for the GOP's health care bill. That, plus a HIP 2.0 work requirement and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending May 26th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, reports that former Indiana Senator Dan Coats declined a White House request to push back on the FBI investigation into Russian influence in the election. Coates, who served nearly three decades in Congress, now serves as Director of National Intelligence. A Washington Post report this week alleges that President Trump asked Coates to push back against the FBI's investigation into possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. That request allegedly came shortly after now-fired FBI Director James Comey confirmed the existence of that investigation. The report says Coates denied Trump's request. Testifying before a Senate committee, Coates refused to comment on the story and, in response to a hypothetical, said any political shaping of intelligence would be inappropriate, which Coates added he's made clear to the Trump administration. After FBI Director Comey was fired, could Dan Coates be on the chopping block? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. And Delaney, if the report is true, Coates undoubtedly did the right thing here, but might he pay for it? Oh, he might. Uh, you know, he put himself in an impossible situation. Anybody who goes to work for that particular president is volatile, unpredictable, uh, ill-informed, and a bully. And he wants everything his way. And that apparently doesn't even understand the rule of law. So anybody who goes to work with for him puts themselves or puts him or herself in a terrible situation. He's got some loyalty to the man who appointed him, clearly. But he also owes a duty to the citizens of this country. And, you know, if he's being asked to obstruct justice, that is significant. And, and of course, that reinforces the, all the rumors swirling around why the uh, why uh, Mr. Comey was fired. And those are important things that, that Congress needs to know, the uh, uh, Mueller needs to know, and the public needs to know. So I, I'd love to be the fly on the wall in a conversation between Dan Coats and Mike Pence saying, what in heaven's name did you get me into by giving me this job? Dan Coats, a long career in public service that uh, really above reproach. Do right. you think he's having second thoughts about the latest job he's taken? I doubt it. Um, you know, I think that he went into this eyes wide open. And, and first of all, let's say that we don't even know what is true. These are reports, they're speculative, etc. But if, in fact, that happened, then certainly uh, Director Coates did the right thing, as we would expect him to. And I think that's who we want as a director of of national intelligence. And I mean, he has a long history of being very well respected on both sides of the aisle, you know, as, as a senator and certainly as an ambassador and, uh, you know, and he served in the, in the military prior to that. So, I mean, I think that this is exactly who we want and, um, and I'm certainly glad that he's in that position. Exactly who we'd want in the job. Does that mean he might not be long for the job? You know, that's the benefit, I guess, of having the kind of distinguished record that both of the other panelists have alluded to, 37 years since his first 
election time uh, in the U.S. House, uh, as was as Jennifer mentioned, a distinguished career that included an ambassadorship and, and uh, two tenures in the U.S. Senate. So he doesn't need, he's not the rising star who needs to make nice and check a box uh, on his resume so that he can get, make sure that he gets the next rung up the ladder on the uh, next administration. He's, he's been there, he's done that, and at this point, I'm guessing, uh, as would be the case with many people in public life, he's probably more concerned about his legacy, his credibility, the impact he's had, and, the, and how he's remembered uh, after he leaves office, uh, not in this case elective office, but after he leaves office. And so it makes the decision very easy. It, it may be tougher than it would be, again, for somebody who, who doesn't want to offend. If you're Dan Coates, Credibility is the is the key, and I think uh, shepherding that at, at all costs is is what's most important here. Coates wouldn't comment directly on the report, but then said in, in answer to a hypothetical that no uh, no intelligence should be politicized, and that he's made that clear to the Trump administration. Making that clear to the Trump administration does that essentially confirm that report? Well, it seems to, and uh, I, I think that uh, the points made so far are exactly right. Dan Coates is not going to imperil himself or the country, for that matter, uh, because he he's uh, got a record that is uh, uh, indicative of a of a solid career. I think he's above reproach. I think he also benefits from the Comey firing in the sense that the blowback from that firing has shown the administration that uh, that they don't want to do this again if they don't have to. So I think. Um, you know, I think Dan Coates is going to uh, do what he thinks is best for the country and for himself. Um, you know, and as Ann mentioned, there is some loyalty uh, due, I suppose, to the person who appointed him. Uh, but I think he's more concerned with um, uh, the outcome as it relates to uh, the country or to himself. But you know what makes this particularly difficult is not just the dual loyalties, it's the fact that the director of national intelligence is supposed to be protecting the country right. from foreign influence. Right. And here he is caught between allegations of collusion with the White House and foreign influence. We're not used to having to deal with that. And I think that makes this position very, very risk, uh, risky for him. Well, and as a practical matter, you asked about head on the chopping block. We have seen instances where this president has been willing to say, "You're out of here," and now we're fired. You're fired. I was. We were going to say it. He and he. Uh, that's his new show. You're out of here. I think that's the sequel. Uh-huh. But, After he but finishes you can't, in office. And, and we've all seen the reports. Who's next, Sean Spicer? Is it somebody else? Well, the issue is you can't fire everybody with whom you disagree or who says yeah. no to you, or you're going to end up with a pretty empty White House. So, I mean, as a practical matter. I think that also is an insurance policy for Dan Coates, presuming he wants to stay in the job. Uh, <laughs> you can't just have this this trail of, of uh, yeah, we'll see. overthrowing office holders. We'll, we'll see holders. what yeah. happens. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office this week released its analysis of the Republican health care reform bill. The CBO score of the American Health Care Act, a bill approved by all seven GOP members of Indiana's House delegation, says it will leave 14 million people uninsured next year as compared to Obamacare, with 23 million losing coverage by 2026. The Indiana Democratic Party blasted the bill's cuts to Medicaid and criticized House Republicans for voting on the measure before the CBO score was released. Yet Indiana GOP Chair Kyle Hupfer says Obamacare is still hugely unpopular in Indiana and notes the CBO shows that the GOP's bill reduces the deficit by $119 billion. Jennifer Hollowell, should Republicans have waited to vote on this bill until they knew some of these numbers, both good and bad? 
No, absolutely not. I think that uh, they did the right thing in, in voting on the bill and getting it moving. The Senate now is working on it. But, I mean, let's not forget that the CBO has been wrong perhaps more times than it's been right. And so I think that, and, and frankly was wrong about lots of things about Obamacare as it is right now. But the, the underlying fact here is that Americans have voted in election after election after election now, sending a message that they want to repeal and replace Obamacare. And that is what we're doing. The Senate is now working on it. And it's going to change, as we all know, through the course of this and in negotiations with the White House and others. And so we will get to a final place, ideally, in the next couple of months. Will this CBO score ultimately have any impact on the larger debate? Republicans that voted for this don't care about what the CBO says. They don't care about the facts either. And they don't care about the, the savings, the, the purported savings of $119 billion. Because the tax breaks that they're giving to the, the top one-tenth of one percent of the population grossly outweigh out, uh, what savings we have from this supposed health care replacement bill. What, what you've, you know, most of the people in this country are not covered by Obamacare. But they are benefiting from having a package of benefits, from having the lifetime caps lifted, from having uh, no more than three times for older Americans who are not covered by Medicare, no more than three times the premiums and the pre-existing conditions being covered. All of those are in jeopardy under their proposal. And that's going to affect a vast majority of people not covered by Obamacare directly. And on top of that, they're kicking 23 million people off health care insurance. Their promise to the people when they ran in this campaign, what they told everybody was they could get better insurance for a lower cost and cover more people. Guess what? They lied on all three points. Let's not forget that if you like your plan, you can keep it. If you like your doctor, you can keep it. Let's not forget that Democrats ignored the CBO numbers on Obamacare for several years when it wasn't what they liked. And, and just how many recently, more people and are And let's covered. not forget that how when many they passed it are in the middle of the night with no one able to read the whole bill, they didn't care more. about that. We don't even know what these numbers are really going to oh, be. What I we see. do know is so that the CBO numbers are typically So we don't have to pay attention to the facts because it's wrong. directly from up here to your ears. I John, got it. John, do you think any House Republicans will have a little buyer remorse now that they've seen these numbers? Um, maybe a few, but certainly not enough to move the overall outcome. I think the outcome is pretty well set, certainly in the House. We'll see what the Senate does and what they reconcile in the end. Uh, but I'm going to take some issue with this knocking of the CBO score um, and also the notion there's really not a fair comparison, Jennifer, between how it was passed originally in 2010 and how it was passed this past time. In 2010, it went through an entire process. Yes, it was passed in the middle of the night, and yes, the final bill was something that people hadn't read uh, completely through. But the framework for that bill had been available, and that conversation had been going on for months. For a year. So, so, you know, there is some difference there. Um, but, you know, the, the, the numbers are difficult to pin down, and any time you're trying to get, you know, some kind of a, a sense for what's going to go forward, but the CBO numbers are not so grossly wrong that it should disqualify uh, them as, a, as a, a baseline for understanding what the effect of this bill will be going forward. Uh, I think that the political world needs to be a little more careful about what we say about um, institutions that are meant to provide uh, information that is not biased or partisan, 
Um, and, and if we don't, we're going to end up with the free-for-all, and that's really where we're getting close to right now. Um, I've got my facts, you've got your facts, and never the twain shall meet. We can't govern that way, and we'll never end up with uh, anything if we do. I'll say again, John, did, ultimately, do these numbers matter, or is it really, well, we've repealed and replaced Obamacare? It's all in the messaging and how this is, uh, how this is spun out. If, you, if you're somebody who uh, took office on a promise to repeal this horrible, dreaded, much maligned uh, Obamacare, well, then you can go and claim victory. Uh, and hope that that your term expires or that you're retired and on the golf course before things hit the fan, uh, and that your constituents are not among the 24 million uh, who might lose insurance. Clearly, there will be a backlash at some point. You can't have 24 million Americans affected in a negative manner and it just be non-existent in terms of the ripple effect. Now, it may be parts of constituencies and jurisdictions that aren't in the uh, the backyards of these of these Republican lawmakers, and that may well be the case, but there will be some uh, pushback. And and I agree with John. The, num the numbers, you know, we we've seen this now with the federal judiciary and with agencies with where you have generations of expertise on on you know issues that would yeah. elude most of us, and we're willing sort of now to dismiss that. And so the debates aren't over like policy change. on the same game board. Now we don't even agree on the game board. Yeah. All right, moving on. Governor Eric Holcomb wants to add a work requirement to HIP 2.0, the state's Medicaid expansion program. Under Holcomb's proposal, HIP 2.0 recipients, low-income Hoosiers, would have to spend time each week working, job hunting, job training, or studying, or risk having their health care suspended. Other states have tried to add a work requirement with no luck from the feds, but the Trump administration has indicated it's open to such proposals. Under the proposed rule, HIP members must gradually increase their hours, eventually requiring 20 hours per week of work or those other qualifying activities. If they don't meet those hours, their coverage would be suspended until they meet the requirements for a month. Some people, such as pregnant women, students, and people with disabilities, would be exempt. John Katzenberger, should HIP 2.0 recipients be subject to a work requirement? Well, I'll leave that to the policymakers. My personal feeling about that is, is neither here nor there. But I do think that it's going to be difficult. Um, we've seen in, in other cases where other states have been denied the ability to do that because uh, the federal government has, or the courts even, have said that, uh, that that's not a, a, something that you can require. But I will say that, that you know, the, as it's laid out by the administration, the, the uh, uh, Holcomb administration, they've made a number of exceptions, yeah. uh, and they've been very clear about who they want to include. So given that HIP 2.0 has uh, already been a waiver from the usual Medicaid, and given the way that the administration has put this together, I think it's very possible that they, and, and the fact that it's the Trump administration that is making the determination now and not the Obama administration, yeah that there's a very good chance that they will succeed in, in, in getting this included. Will that be good for Eric Holcomb? Uh, again, I suppose it's in the messaging. Yes, I, I think he, his program stands a pretty good chance, this waiver request of, of gaining traction. Again, because the person, uh, one of the people who will be making the decision, Seema Verma, is the architect of HIP 2.0 yeah. and now runs the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid services, and will be the first to weigh in on whether these requested waivers are legit or not. This is the kind of thing that it seems to me where you it, it, it will sell well with with uh, Capitol Hill and with the White House. You know, let's 
combat laziness and, and malingering, we're going to get people to, to work. And if, if the goal here is for states to advance their particular waiver requests and programs, I guess that's a message that resonates. Now, that's not the same as saying that it's good policy or not, uh, but well, you didn't ask the, that question. To that, well, to that point, it, it seems an easy sell when you're talking about, for instance, unemployment benefits. You shouldn't just be getting money. You should show that you're trying to get off of unemployment. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about people's health care, is it a harder selling point to say, well, you have to, we have to show this, this proof of work to get that? Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's very smart, and if I read through it, the state took a very thoughtful approach to this. And as you mentioned, there are lots of folks who are exempt yeah. who should be exempt from doing this. And there are also a dozen or so different things that qualify for that, whether it's education or job training, searching for a job, um, caregiving, uh, community service, all kinds of things. So it, there aren't stringent requirements. It isn't something that's going to be hard to meet, but it does require some level. And again, it's gradually from zero up to, to up 20. to 20 hours yeah. over a, a period of time. And so it's all things that people can meet if they fall into that category. And so I think it's a very positive thing. And it is a little bit different than welfare reform. But, you know, back in the 90s, Republicans and Democrats alike came together for, uh, you know, for changes to the welfare program. And I think that this makes sense. And, And the reason for it, by the way, is not just to require it for no reason. We, the state, is going to need a million new workers over the next 10 years because of the number of baby boomers and other people who are leading the workforce. And we have lots of jobs coming into the state. And you know we already have lots of places that can't find the skilled workforce to yeah. fill those yeah, jobs. And you so know what's amazing are, about this And ideally idea. what will happen is because after they go through this process, whether it's training or otherwise, but is, but then is, they will end up in a job where an employer is... But is a state health care program the place to yeah. be trying to push no, that? No, it, it, sh- it obviously shouldn't. We're the only advanced country in the world that doesn't think all of its people should have health care. We're the only one in the world that believes that. I mean, this is not welfare. You can't use it to buy food or you can't use it to buy a house or anything else, okay? It's only for health care. We have 1.4 million people on Medicaid in this state. A million of them fall immediately into that category. They're either children or they're pregnant women or they're old people in nursing homes who have exhausted all their resources. Of the 400,000 that are left, of the 400,000 that are left, they have no idea how many of them are working. Remember, none of them support minimum wage reform. You can have two people working full-time with two children and still qualify for Medicare. Medicaid, excuse me, still qualify because we pay a ridiculously right. low so minimum it's, so wage. It's a question of how many people but we're going to have to set up an entire bureaucracy, an entire bureaucracy to monitor this, rather than give people benefits. An entire bureaucracy is going to be set up by the Republicans who want small government in order to get, in order to get one or two malingerers so they can show their. All right, moving on. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should HIP 2.0 recipients have their health care coverage suspended if they don't make, meet work requirements? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question, and remember this was a redo from January, given all the controversy surrounding Donald Trump, will Mike Pence become president before the end of 2017? 
51% said yes, 49% said no. That was up from 66% who said no back in January. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Dozens of Notre Dame University graduates walked out on Vice President Mike Pence this week. Pence was the commencement speaker at Notre Dame's graduation ceremony, and as the vice president was introduced to speak, dozens of students and family members silently stood and walked out. The protest was long planned as a sign of resistance to Trump administration policies. Pence didn't address the protest directly, but did make note of what he calls, quote, a time when free speech and civility are waning on campuses across America. John Schwannis, this protest has drawn praise and criticism, each from both sides of the aisle. So was this disrespectful to the vice president? Well, you know what you call a protest that seeks to avoid offending anyone. It's something other than a protest, because it's by definition, that's why you're doing it. You're showing your concern. You're showing your frustration. Actually, I think this was uh, not disrespectful. Uh, in the way that we've seen some other protests uh, where people had been booing and hissing and making noise, which would interrupt the message being delivered by the speaker for students who do want to hear it. To me, this seems to be the perfect solution, uh, not only in an academic setting like Notre Dame, but anywhere. If you agree with the message, you can stay and listen to it. If you disagree with the message and want to show your your frustration with uh, with the person delivering it, well, then you get up and go. And to I think that it point, was, it was his, good that way. In his speech, uh, Vice President Pence talked about the the you know so called safe spaces on college campuses. Sh- even if you disagree with him, should you sit there and listen to what he has to say? Well, I think that there's a point to be made, um, but I think John's articulation is is done well too. This was not done. Um, uh, you know, without a lot of forethought and consideration, um, I do get a little tired of the the uh, you know casting academia as a place where you have to protect people's feelings and thoughts. Um, you know, it should be about the hurly burly of ideas. Um, but this is a this is a different circumstance. We're not talking about you know the classroom. We're not talking about somebody in the in the quad having a, a demonstration. Uh, we're talking about graduation, and and they. You know, we're displeased with with the choice, the choice. of Mike Pence, yeah. and this is the way they chose to show it. All right, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos was in Indiana this week to unveil a national school choice proposal. Many of you again. Providing few Thank details, DeVos told a school choice advocacy group that she and President Trump want to give states flexibility to create so or expand school voucher programs like the one and Indiana has. DeVos also toured an Indianapolis Catholic school in which all students use a voucher. The Department of Education spokesperson said DeVos came to Indiana on a fact-finding mission. The visit came just before the release of President Trump's budget proposal, which includes a cut to public education of more than $9 billion, more than 13% of funding. Jennifer Hollowell, does the school choice expansion proposal fit with then a public education cut that, that, that is that significant? Does those, do those two things mesh together? Well, well, you're putting them together at this point, but um, I, I want to talk about a couple of different things. One, I had the opportunity to meet with the secretary last week, and I appreciate uh, the work that she's done and, and that she and this administration believe that kids deserve the right to go to a school of their choice. And um, I think that it's important that she spoke about that, but also what's important is that she signaled that she thinks that states... And, and local governments should be in charge of those decisions, right? More state, not not pushing a 
national um, voucher program. Program, right? This, yeah. But just the, and, the flexibility. And, to and do so that. I, yeah. I think that's important. I also think when you talk about, you know, cutting the budget, we have a what nearly twenty trillion dollar uh, debt, and some point we are going to have to make decisions. We have to make cuts. And I think, look, you know, so Governor, cut, Governor cut rich taxes, three hundred we'll, billion. We'll make cuts in lots of places. Of but Governor Daniels used to say, "You'll never know how much government." You won't miss, right? And yeah. I think that yeah. government programs get started you and they never go away. So if they go through an overhaul to and identify programs that are unnecessary, you can't talk about the, the budget deficits. You can't talk about it. They don't care about budget deficits. All they want to do is cut programs that help people. These these school vouchers <laughs> yeah. allow discrimination. There's a school in Bloomington that puts on its website that it will not accept the children of of gay uh, of a gay couple. Period. They don't have to take kids with handicaps. They don't have to take kids with disabilities. And, and we are fostering that as well as providing money for religious education. It's against the Constitution. It's but absurd the courts to say haven't that we want to cut Indiana Constitution. All right, it's finally, against the Constitution. Finally, this Indiana. weekend, of course, is All the, the Indianapolis 500. And uh, panelists, who do you have winning the 101st running of the greatest spectacle in racing? You want me to start? Yeah, John. I'm say Juan Pablo Montoya. John? That's because you Ram like Ray to Ray say Hall. the name. I do. I'm rooting yeah. for Hinchcliffe. I have a Ray, friend who works for I'm, I'm going with Ed Carpenter. I think uh, Fernando Alonso would be an interesting story, so that's my choice. There we go. Mm-hmm. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Ann Delaney, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Chuanis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.